All right, if you found Mark chapter 5, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Mark chapter 5 is a beautiful story. It's an unusual story. It's a story that uh, I pray that God will use for your own heart today. If you're a guest with us, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We are now, we started in January. We just go through each passage, and we've landed in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. It's a long passage from verse 21 down to verse 43. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin. Join me there. Verse 21. <clears throat> when Jesus had crossed again in the boat <clears throat> to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. He was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He went with him. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather she grew worse. She had heard reports about Jesus. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garment? His disciples said to him, you, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? He looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing, knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear and trembling. She fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. But, they, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old, 
And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, on the authority of your word, help. God, help us. Pray that today would be like no other day for men and women here that need help. That you will break through. Use your word by your spirit. Take us to Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I freely admit to all of you here today that I eat like a middle schooler. <laughs> Maybe even worse than a middle schooler. I like chicken nuggets and chicken tenders. We go to a restaurant. Yesterday for lunch, I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I like grilled cheese sandwiches. I like Cheetos, the regular kind and the puff kind. I like barbecue chips and sour cream and onion chips and sometimes with salt and vinegar, except to make my tongue feel weird so I don't eat them much. I like cheer wine and cherry coke and orange drink. I don't care what kind, Fanta or the other. I'm going to have dessert. If I'm not having ice cream, if I'm not having ice cream for dessert, I'd like to have a cake, cupcakes, but most of all, I like, I like cookies. I like chocolate chip cookies and ginger snaps. I like Little Debbie. Little Debbie makes these Little Debbie oatmeal cream pie cookies. They got regular size. Now they come up with the big man size. <clears throat> but the best cookie that's ever been made is an Oreo. Mm. Happy Father's Day, guys. An Oreo, it's a little mini delicious, little mini delicious chocolate sandwich. You pick that Oreo up, you look at it, and you see on the outer edge is hard outer edge, the crust. Inside is something creamy and soft and delicious. And on the other side, that cream is another hard edge. Now, I take you through the structure of an Oreo cookie, not just to make you think about Oreos, but because the passage in front of us is built like an Oreo cookie. Starts with one story, this man named Jairus who comes to Jesus. That's how the story starts. He has a daughter that is in trouble. And before there's resolution there, we pause that story and it goes right into another story. In the middle is this story of a woman who's right on the edge of existence. And we find resolution there. That story stays intact. And while that story is coming to an end, as it's closing, we pick up the story of Jairus again, his daughter. So that you have this sandwich structure. And I thought to myself, how can, I, how can I do this? Should I do it in two sections? There are two stories here. But the problem is that these two are wound together. They must stay 
together. So what is the context? In, in the context here in chapter 5, we've just come through the first two early stories of the miracles of Jesus. There are two of them. You remember the one on the Sea of, the, the sea of Galilee when the storm comes in and Jesus calms the storm and scares the disciples to death. There the disciples see that Jesus is Lord over the natural world. He has power and authority over nature. They go across the Sea of Galilee. They end up where the Greeks live in the Gerasenes, the Decapolis. There they meet a man who is possessed by a bunch of demons, maybe a hundred, maybe as many as 6,000, since that's what a legion is. And Jesus casts out all those demons. They go into the pigs. Those pigs run down the hill into the water and are drowned. There we see that Jesus is not only Lord over the natural, Jesus is Lord over the supernatural. Now they come back across the Sea of Galilee, landing once again, probably in Capernaum. Now we're going to see Jesus display his power over disease and death. Now today there's a lot to cover here, and we'll go quickly through it. But as we go through it, I don't want you to ever take your eyes off what Jesus is doing. I want you to keep your eyes on Jesus and see how he deals with people and trust how Jesus will deal with you. Let's, far, let's follow the storyline and see. As long as you have Jesus, there is hope. God brought you here to hear. As long as you have Jesus, there is hope. Let's go there. First thing I want you to notice is that Jesus, Jesus sees the hurt in every crowd. Jesus sees the hurt in every crowd. Verse 21, we find out <clears throat> that they have come back across the Sea of Galilee. Verse 21, when Jesus crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was on the edge of the sea, on the seashore. I don't know how they knew he was coming, but when he got back over there to Capernaum, they were waiting on him. All kinds of people waiting on him in that crowd. Some people were there because they love to hear him teach. They want to hear what he has to say. Some people are there because they hate the way he teaches. They want to catch him in saying something blasphemous. Some people are there to receive a miracle. They need, they need to be healed. Some people are there because they're spectators. Anywhere Jesus goes, there's a show, so they want to be there to see what kind of show he's going to put on. But in the hundreds of thronging people, the hundreds of people thronging around Jesus, there are two very different but desperate individuals. One is a well-respected man. His name is Jairus. He is a synagogue official. He's a ruler of the synagogue. He is a man that is well-respected in the community. You don't get there just by moving in. You get there by, by living consistently. People see your life, and he is brought out front. There's another person there that we're going to find out. She's completely different than Jairus, this woman whose life has his life has been marked by desperation and poverty. 
She's been tortured by the idea of being unclean. And her terrible life has brought her right to the point of a depressing dead end. And I want to pause here and say, in every crowd, this crowd, in every crowd, there are people that are high up, people that are low, there are rich people and poor people. There are black people, white people, young people, old people. In this crowd, there are people that are carrying things that we don't have any idea about. And yet Jesus sees it all. There are people in this crowd right now, in this church, right this moment, there are people whose hearts are torn by anxiety. There are people sitting in this church right now listening to the sound of my voice who, who have bodies that have been wrecked by pain. There are people sitting here, they don't want to worry, they know worry is wrong, they don't want to worry. There are people sitting right here whose souls are burdened with worry. There are minds sitting in this church. There are minds that are racked with depression. There are lives in this congregation, lives that are trying to rebuild and heal from abuse. And Jesus sees it all. And even this, even in this, get the scene, even in this busy thronging crowd people are all around him jesus is able to be in the crowd and minister to the individuals god has brought you here in the middle of a crowd with your problem and in the name of jesus you can be healed you can be sustained you can be forgiven what keeps you? What keeps you from coming to Jesus? We're going to see a lot happen here, and there are two major players besides Jesus. The two players in this story, they were wretched. They were in need. They were at the end of themselves. When they came to Jesus, they didn't bring anything to Jesus. They weren't offering anything to Jesus. They came in need. And both of them came to Jesus and were saved. Maybe, maybe God has gotten you to the point. Maybe that's what all this has been about in your life. All of this has been leading up to this. Maybe God has gotten you to that point so that you now realize on the bottom you see, I need Jesus. Maybe God has gotten you to that point so that you can come to Jesus today and receive the eternal healing that is given through the gospel, the gospel. I feel like I need to do it every time I say the word gospel because there is some confusion. Here at Hickory Grove, when we say gospel, this is what I mean. The gospel teaches that God is a holy God who created you in his image. You have dignity because you are created in the image of God, therefore you are to be respected. But the image of God in all of us has been disfigured by our sin. 
That sin is not just something that keeps us far from God. As sinners, we are, we are separated from God. The way the Bible talks about it is that we are dead in sin. That deadness in sin means that we are under the wrath of God. If someone says, do you believe in a wrathful God? Yes, the Bible teaches he is a wrathful God, but that is not all he is. The Bible teaches that he is a loving God, a God who creates, a just God that must punish sin, a loving God that wants to save people, and the gospel is the solution. It's in the person of Jesus. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, lived perfectly, kept the law in a way that we couldn't. And then after keeping the law, he then fulfills salvation by going to the cross. The cross is a, an instrument of torture. There at the cross, God poured out his wrath on his own son, Jesus, killed his son in your place so that justice would be served, that crime would be punished. And God raised him from the dead as if to say, there's victory that has now worked. And the gospel is that Jesus died in your place. And if you will believe that, if you'll turn from your sin and believe that, you will be saved. Jesus brought this together in this passage and this congregation together, and he sees the hurt in every crowd. With that in mind, let's get to the story. I'll give you the second point, number two. Jesus hears the brokenhearted. Jesus hears the brokenhearted. Let's go through verses 21 and 24 and get a picture of the story. Join me there, verse 21. <clears throat> when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So everybody's there. They're all piled in. Verse 22. Then came out of that crowd... Somehow, Jairus, he was able to break through the crowd. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue named Jairus. His, his name means God is light. And his life has reflected that up to this point. He's respected in the community. People look up to him. He had been in that congregation at the synagogue and it served so well. He is now probably in charge of the finances. He's sort of the go-to guy. He is probably a Pharisee which is interesting because the Pharisees were against Jesus his entire earthly ministry. He's probably a Pharisee. And he comes and he does something that nobody expects in verse 22 and verses 23. When he saw Jesus, he put himself in the position of worship. You see it there? Fell down at his feet. Now, Jairus is accustomed to people falling down at his feet. Now he's going to see Jesus falling down in front of Jesus. What would the crowd make of that? Verse 23, we find out what it is that has gotten to this point. Verse 23, he implored him earnestly, begged him earnestly. And this is what he said, my, my little daughter. You know what's interesting is that if you were to read further, you find out later that Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. She's not a little girl. She's right on the threshold of womanhood. And yet, when she's in a crisis, all he can think about is my little girl. There at the feet of Jesus, he says, my little girl, she is, notice what the text says in verse 23. She's at the point of death. 
She is at the point of death. It's interesting the words used there that Mark gives us that Jairus says at the point of death, that is one word, eschaton. If you study theology, the study of the end times is eschatology. Here's this word that he uses. He says to Jesus, my little girl is at the end. Now, who knows how long he's been standing there on the seashore waiting on Jesus to come across. The last time he left her, she was still living, but it doesn't look like she's going to make it, so I need you to come. If you'll just come, verse 23 and 24, if you'll just come and put your hands on her, just, if you'll just touch her, she'll get well and she can live. Come on. And the remarkable thing is, in verse 24, Jesus agrees to do it. Now, let me pause right there, and what do we learn from these these few verses, well, here's the first one. We learned that God, God uses desperate situations to bring us to Jesus. God uses desperate situations to bring you to Jesus. You went through all of that pain and sorrow and hurt. You, he took you through that so that you would cling to Jesus. I've spoke to two families this week, yesterday and the day before, in crisis situations with a child, and it has driven them. Now, in fact, I would write, another, I'd write the second thing. Crises clarifies our faith. When we have crisis, it clarifies our faith. Here's what I mean. Before this, Jairus is a leader in the synagogue. He believes in God. He believes in the God of the Old Testament. He believes that there is a God. He has a general sense of who God is, believes in God. Now, this passage, this crisis has, has put a laser. He, he's, he's been pressed to believe in Jesus. Sometimes God uses the crises in your life to drive you to Jesus. His faith goes from being like a light bulb that shines everywhere to a laser that is on Jesus. I'll give you a third thing you can learn, at least I, I feel like I've learned reading this, is that humility, humility, humility and worship go hand in hand. Verses 22 and 23, you see Jairus right there in front of Jesus. He is in the dirt. His face is down low. He's begging Jesus for help. That is not what a ruler of the synagogue does. But this crisis has hit his life and it has dropped him to his knees in front of Jesus and all of his pride is gone. You know, proud people don't know how to worship. You know who, has to, you know who knows how to worship? People that have been humbled. Here's a man down on his face in front of Jesus. There's urgency in his voice. Please. I don't know how long she can hold on. Please come. The urgency. Some of you know the urgency. You've gotten a call. There's been an emergency. You get there as fast as you can, but on the way there, it seems like everything is in your way. Everybody is, is stopping you. It seems like time slows down. He's trying to get Jesus to come home. On the way to his house, something happens. Brings you to the third point, number three. Jesus honors imperfect faith. 
Let's just, let's just walk through it. Verse 24, you find it there. The stories, they go together. Verse 24, he went with Jairus. You see, they're on the way. A great crowd is going with him. In verse 24, they're all thronged about him. And in that crowd, verse 25, there is a woman who has a female problem. It's not a fatal problem. It is a chronic problem. She has a discharge of blood. She's had that 12 years. What's interesting to me in juxtaposition is the 12 years of suffering up against the 12 years of joy Jairus' daughter has brought him. For 12 years, she grew up in that home. It's been so good to have this little child. We love her so much. 12 years of joy up against 12 years of suffering. What kind of suffering did she go under? We find it there in verse 25. It's a terrible condition. Verse 25 tells us that she suffered in such a way that Leviticus would say she was unclean. She might as well have leprosy. She would suffer religiously. She is not in the community of saints. She can't go into the congregation, whether the temple or the synagogue. She might as well be, she might as well be wearing a shirt that says unclean or like the scarlet letter, Hester Prynne having a scarlet A that says, that's what you are. Stay away from her. She's suffering religiously. She suffered socially. She suffered from her family. She suffered physically. Verse 26 says that she, she suffered at the hands of the doctors. That word suffered, the, the word suffer is the word masti, M-A-S-T-I. It's the word scourge or whipped. It's like she's been whipped. She suffered at the doctor's hands at rudimentary, rudimentary medicine. It wasn't even, wasn't even medieval, it was before that. You can go and read Jewish literature. The Talmud gives you uh, what they would do for this condition. There's seven, there's seven or eight or 11 different remedies for the problem that she had. All of them are degrading and humiliating. She's walked through every bit of that. She had to pay for it, verse 26. She's not getting better. She suffered. But she had heard something. Verse 27 and 28 tells us she heard of this man named Jesus. Don't forget how important it is to talk. Faith comes through hearing. She had heard the report of Jesus, and so she conjured up in her mind, this is what I'm going to do. I'll go incognito. I'll come up behind him. Verse 27 and 28. <clears throat> she heard the reports about Jesus. She came up behind him in the crowd, and she touched his garment. This is what she said. If I touch even his garment, we find out in the other Gospels, it's his tassels. If I can just touch the part that's holy, the tassel of his garment, the hem of his garment, if I do that, I can be made well. What she had was a belief in Jesus, but it was mixed with this superstition. The idea of, uh, of touching, we see that later with the, the handkerchiefs of Paul that people will want to touch and be healed, or even the shadow of Peter as he walked by, the shadow would fall on them, they would be healed. Or, or if you go through French history and English history, you find the monarchs in the 11th and 12th century they would have a ceremony called the ceremony of touching because they believed that kings were ordained by God and they could heal. So the peasants would line up. Edward the Confessor, Henry I would touch peasants. They believed that that might heal them. That's sort of what she has. That kind of superstitious faith. The sort of the charlatans on TV that'll preach and say, we'll send you a prayer cloth. If you'll touch that, 
That's sort of what she has in her mind. It's a, it's a faith. It's an imperfect faith. It is an uninformed faith. It is an undeveloped faith. But it's a faith. You remember what Jesus said about the size of faith? The size of a mustard seed. What do you have to believe to be a Christian? What do you have to believe? What is the, the irreducible minimum to believe we believe in the perfect life, that Jesus died in your place, that God raised him from the dead if you repent and believe? The text says in verse 29, she believed that was going to happen. And verse 29 says, immediately she's healed. That word healed, we, Healed by his, or maybe think of Isaiah. I don't know if Mark meant this or not, but Isaiah, when we are, it's by his stripes, by his scourging, we are healed. Scourging is the same word used of her suffering. It seems to me that as I'm looking at this, I'm trying to find out where is the gospel in all of this. And I would say something like this. Just as, just as Jesus took her suffering away, on the cross, Jesus takes the suffering we are due. She does this in secret. Jesus feels it. It's interesting, verses 30 and following. Jesus draws, Jesus draws the woman out. Jesus does not look for, for in, incognito faith, secret faith. She, she's trying to get away with a little something. She needs a miracle as bad as the condition she's in. She didn't want any more attention drawn to her. This is, they're packed in. Maybe the people don't know her completely. And all she wants to do is touch, get her miracle, and get out. It's not how it works with Jesus. Verse 30, we see the condition of Jesus. He is completely God and completely man. Completely God because the power of God flowed through him to her, completely man, because he wasn't sure where, who it was. And so he stops the whole crowd in verse 30. And he says, who touched my garment? Now remember, they're in this terrible crowd. They're in a throng is the words that are used to describe the crowd. I was at the Southern Baptist Convention in New Orleans. Connie and I were there last week. And 16,000 people in this convention center sometimes were funneled into this narrow hallway to, to get to lunch, and everybody piled up on me. I feel like they're all breathing on me at the same time. They're a throng. It's the idea. And Jesus says, who touched me in this throng? And his disciples, verse 31, what do you mean? Look around you. How can you say who, who touched you? Verse 32 Looked around to see what was going on. Verse 33, the woman knows she's been caught. So she comes forward, verse 33, knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear and trembling. She fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Look, verse 34, is it beautiful? Is verse 34 beautiful to you? It should be. Look at the words that Jesus, look at the tender mercy that Jesus extends to this woman who had been treated so poorly. This is what he says, verse 34, daughter. It's the only time in the whole Bible that Jesus calls anybody daughter. 
He says to her daughter. How long had it been since she's heard a, a, the voice of affection in her ear, daughter? He says to her, your faith, it's not the superstition, it's not the a ritual, it's not that you've touched me, it's not that, you didn't have to do that, your faith has done it. Your faith is incomplete, it's uninformed, but it was in Jesus. Your faith has brought healing. Verse 34, he says to her something that is a pretty typical greeting, but let's infuse it with meaning. Go in peace, he says to her. It's been a long time since she's had any peace in her life. Now, finally, she's whole. He adds to it in verse 34 something that everybody else would hear. He tells her in front of everybody, you are now healed of your disease. Now, his public declaration is important. Everybody thought she was unclean. The only person that knew she had been healed was her and Jesus. Everybody needed to know. Something has happened. He says in front of everybody, you are now pure. What a, what a picture of the gospel. When the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Have you come to Jesus for cleansing? We are all worse than this woman. Our condition is worse. We are all unclean. In fact, Paul says that our righteousness, your best day, is like filthy rags. The Bible teaches that our, our sins, though our sins are like scarlet, they can be made white as snow. While that's happening, while the woman is getting her life back together, while things were picking up for her, it's going so good. Verse 34, while her life is coming back together, life has slipped away for the little girl. The, the, the delay, they were trying, Jairus was trying to get Jesus to his house and get there. The delay has been costly. We see it in the final point. Number four. Jesus is victorious over death. If you're a note taker, this is probably a good point. Just to put your pen down a minute and join me there in the story. Verse 34 and 35. And time is running out. Verse 34, while he's healed this woman. Verse 35, while he's still talking to the woman. While they're in conversation, he's saying to her, go in peace. He hears behind him. Some people came from, verse 35, from Jairus' house. They've told him, hey, hey it's it. your daughter's dead. Jesus hears that. He turns over to Jairus and he says, verse 36, now look at me. You've got to not be afraid. You, got to, you have to believe. It's gotten serious now. Verse 37, he tells the crowd, get, just get, give him some air. Get back. Tells the crowd, you can't go with us. Verse 37, it's the inner circle. He brings Peter and James and John. It's the first time we see the inner circle. He brings them along. Now the five men walk toward Jairus' house. Verse 38, they get there, and out in the yard are the professional mourners. 
Anytime someone dies, even up to this very day, anytime someone dies, a process is set in motion. That day and time, part of the process was bringing in people that were professionally made a living out of mourning when someone died, weeping loudly. So they are there in verse 38, and Jesus walks into the crowd there in verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. He saw the commotion, people weeping loudly, verse 39. He goes in and he says something that, that startles them. He uses the euphemism. He says, look, the, the little girl is not dead. She is asleep. Why did he use that euphemism? Because she's obviously dead. Sleep. To be asleep implies that you're going to get up. To be asleep, built into the sleep is you're going to wake up. Jesus says to them, she's not dead. That's not the condition that I bring. There's a waking up. 150 years ago, the cemetery headstones would say oftentimes on the graves, she is asleep in Jesus. Things pick up now. He walks into where the little girl is. <clears throat> She's lying in that room, a corpse. Verse 40, is a, it's a touching family moment. There you have Jesus, and it's, it's interesting, verse 40, it's not just Jairus, now you have mom. She, of course, is diswrought. She's been there the whole time. Father and mother and Jesus, you have Peter, James, and John, what you have here is a picture of what you need in a time of crisis. You have the family, father and mother. You have the church, symbolized by Peter, James, and John. And you have Jesus. All in this room, in verse 41. And verse, there's so much in verse 41. The text says in verse 41 that Jesus bends down now. And he takes that little cold hand. Takes her by the hand. Why did he do that? Maybe because when her eyes opened, she needed to know it's okay. There's mom and dad over there. It's, it's okay. He takes her by the hand and in her mother tongue. If you, if you speak English as a second language, you started maybe with Spanish, French. Sometimes when things get tough or you're hurt, you, you revert back to mother tongue. It's interesting that Mark tells us that Jesus speaks in Aramaic. Greek was spoken there. Mark has written this for, for Romans to read, and so the drama is here. Mark says that Jesus spoke in her mother tongue. And he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Mark says, he translates it for us, little girl, arise. Now, what happens next is a miracle. But the miracle comes not because mom and dad believe, not because Peter, James, and John are there. The miracle happens because of the voice, the word. The miracle happens because Jesus spoke. When you read the book of Genesis and you open it up and there is creation, and how does creation happen? God speaks. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, how did that happen? Jesus speaks. You see, Jesus creates what he commands. 
He makes this happen. When you get saved and your life has changed, what has happened? God has spoken. Jesus speaks and the little girl's eyes open up. She sits up. She's not a little girl. We're told that she's almost a woman. She's 12 years old. The day, that day and time is 12 years old. She's pretty close to being a woman. Gets her up and the people are amazed. Verse 42 and 43, their mom and dad are ecstatic. You can imagine falling on the floor, weeping, crying with joy. And Jesus says, you keep this to yourself now. Verse 43, you don't, don't talk about this. They're not ready yet for, for the resurrection. They're not ready yet. It's interesting, Jesus says, just give her something to eat. What you have there is the story of the resurrection. It is a proto-resurrection. It is, the, first re it is a, the promise of a coming resurrection. It is a promise that the gospel will work, that his perfect life, his death, and then the resurrection. It is a promise that death is not the end. She is asleep in Jesus. This is a promise that Jesus is the giver he is the life giver. Jesus is our life giving hope that as long as you have Jesus, you have hope. That's what I'm asking today. For those of you brothers and sisters that have walked with Jesus for some time, but it's felt as if it's felt as if you've been in a wilderness. Maybe God is now renewing. Maybe today your hope in Jesus has been renewed. For those of you that, that have been coming to church, been here several times at Acre Grove, but today's the first time that it actually clicked and made sense. Today you'd like to establish your hope in Jesus. The way we end our service at Hickory Grove is we sing a last worship song. We oftentimes call that an invitation song. It is us inviting you to come and give your life to Jesus. So before we sing this morning, why don't you join me now in a time of commitment and prayer. Join me as we, as we pray. With your heads bowed this morning, as you go to the Lord in a time of commitment and prayer, two, two parts of this invitation. When we sing, I'm going to invite you just to come forward and pray. Would you just come and pray? Maybe, maybe you've been struck by the great hope you have in Jesus. You want to come and thank God for it. Or maybe you've just been reminded. You want to just come and pray for someone or for yourself. Or maybe you want a pastor to pray with you. When we sing this morning, it's a good time to come forward and pray. There are others of you, you need to come forward, but you don't need to pray. You need to talk to a preacher, a pastor about giving your life to Jesus. You've heard the gospel, you desire to be changed, and you want God to change you through faith in Jesus. We'll talk to you about that. Why don't you come forward and talk to a pastor. They're all sitting down here. Talk to a pastor about what it means to give your life to Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for the joy that awaits us in Jesus. We thank you that when we die finally one day, we will be asleep in Jesus. I pray that you would apply the hope of the gospel to people, men and women here that need to hear it. Draw them to yourself even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.